Great. Well, it's great to be here with you today. Let me read something to you. Uh, Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City writes the following. We will always give effortlessly to that which is our salvation, to those things which give our lives meaning. If Jesus is the one who saved us, our money, we could add our time and energy, flows easily out of his work, his people, his causes. If, however, our religion is our appearance or our social status or personal comfort or pleasure, our money, then our time and energy flows easily into those things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. Uh, Most of all, we thank you that you promise you're with us now, and we know that uh, you are going to speak to us in such a way that draws us closer to you and makes us better for your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, It's great to be here uh, in this room. Uh, I think Sandy gets a whole room. Uh, I got a half room, but I'll take it. (laughs) I appreciate it because it had been a little depressing to to be in that full room. But uh, anyway, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. I love being in this room. And the reason I love being in this room is uh, uh, it reminds me of of great memories uh, in my life uh, and, and formative years of my life. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and I went to Messick High School, uh, uh, and I lived on Carrington, right off Haines. So I see some older guys in the, in the room. You might remember Skyview Drive-In over there at Park in, in Haines, and I see some nods going on here. And, uh, but I grew up on, on Carrington. If you lived on the east side of Haines, you went to Messick. If you lived on the west side of Haines, you went to Melrose. So I ended up going to Messick. Uh, graduated there in 1975, but the reason uh, this room means so much to me is in my high school years at Messick in the mid-70s, uh, I came over here and I would shoot basketball in the afternoon because this was the, the best gym to get into if you could get into it. And so I shot ball over here enough that I met some of the PDS coaches and they asked me to, to referee games. And by the time I got to college, I was coaching here in the afternoons and refereeing games and uh, then I ended up being athletic director here for, for three years. So those were great years of my life. But I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I, uh, Larry Lloyd, who is back on the Memphis Leadership Foundation staff now, who actually created the Memphis Leadership Foundation, uh, he had gone out to Fuller Seminary in California and asked me to go out there with him. And So I announced to PDS that I wouldn't be here any longer. And then I got cold feet and didn't go out there. And so for a year I cut grass and, and painted houses. I see Louis Polk back there. We painted houses together. Uh, we weren't very good at it. Uh, that's why we only did it for a year. And then I went and got my master's degree in counseling and did some clinical work in hospitals in Memphis on, on psychiatric and alcohol and, and, and drug uh, units here in the city. And then had an opportunity to go on Young Life staff. And so uh, at that time, uh, Eli Morris, who's at Hope Presbyterian Church, many of you all know Eli, uh, my closest friend in life, and uh, I went out to uh, went on staff at Young Life uh, for a year. Worked in the Manassas area in Old Scudderfield, Oates Manor housing developments. Uh, left there and got married during that time, and uh, went on staff. I married a. I grew up Baptist. Uh, married a Catholic girl. We ended up Presbyterian. So I don't know how all that works. One of those ought to get you to heaven, though, right? You ought to make it some way. Ought, ought to be covered. Uh, but uh, so we worshiped actually at a Catholic church and uh, worshiped a Catholic church called St. Patrick's downtown and uh, ended up starting a, a youth program out of there. And if you know anything about St. Patrick's, it's right across from the FedEx Forum and south of St. Patrick's is Foot and Claiborne Homes. And so I fell in love with Foot and Claiborne Homes, 
uh, knew we didn't need to be in the Catholic Church, really didn't know where we were going to church, uh, go to church, but I knew I needed to share Jesus, continue to share Jesus in that neighborhood. So ended up, uh, Larry Lloyd was coming back from Fuller to create the Memphis Leadership Foundation. So I met with Larry in, the, in May of 87 and said, hey, I've got this great idea. And he goes, but I said, but I don't have any money. And he goes, that's great because we don't have any money either, so it would be a great marriage. And so we struck a deal in the basement of Eastside Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and I found the proposal the other day. It says, a proposal from Kenny Bennett. And so uh, it's funny because my kids will be with me in a store, and they'll figure out uh, the time in life that people knew me as Kenny, as Ken, or as Coach. And so uh, they figure that out. But we became the first uh, ministry of the Memphis Leadership Foundation. Uh, as Eddie said, bought a used van and be- began to hang out in that neighborhood. Uh, in 1999 census, like Eddie said, the, uh, it was, it was uh, pegged as the third poorest zip code in America. I don't know where it lands exactly now. Uh, average family of four makes between $6,500 to $8,000 a year in that pocket. Uh, Hope Six Money has come to the neighborhood, which is federal subsidized money. Uh, if, if you've noticed uh, around the city now, uh, the old what we turn housing projects cease to exist now. They're leveling them. You've seen University Place over off Lamar. You've seen Legends Park over on Poplar. You've seen Lemoyne Garden uh, turn into uh, a a college park over in that area. So the housing projects, as we know them, are going away. So they've leveled Claiborne Homes, uh, and they'll build those up in the next 48 months, and then uh, they'll level foot homes. So the tough thing about ministering in that neighborhood is we've got a transitional population uh, but it's been fun ministering there. Uh, like Eddie said, I bought a van to begin to hang out in the neighborhood. Uh, two things happened when I did that. Number one, back in those days, now it's a much different landscape, there weren't any white people in the neighborhood. So if you were a white person coming through the neighborhood, they assumed you were buying or selling drugs. And so I got picked up by the police three times, frisk, and uh, thrown in the back of a squad car. I don't know if you ever had that experience. Don't raise your hand if you have, but because uh, we don't care to know. Uh, but uh, uh, even when you're innocent, uh, there's some anxious moments. And then on the other side of things, because I was driving an unmarked van, I broke up many a drug deal because the neighborhood thought I was an undercover cop. So some tenuous six months there. But we started out of a van. Uh, me and my wife wanted to be a, a part of that neighborhood, so we, uh, so we joined a church there uh, at Lauderdale and Linden and started operating out of there. It was the original First Baptist Church before it moved to Poplar Parkway, however many years ago. Uh, uh, people ask if it was an uh, integrated uh, fellowship, it was an African-American fellowship. I said, yeah, if me and my wife showed up on Sunday, it was integrated. If we weren't there, it wasn't integrated. But they were there for five years, operated out of the church for three, but wanted to be a stakeholder there in the neighborhood. So. Uh, we found an old uh, turntable factory there in the neighborhood and bought it for, I think, $40,000, which back then was like $5 million, trying to scrape together $40,000. Bought that thing, retrofitted it. There was a body shop next door to it. Took that over uh, and did that, and we were happy as could be there. Bought the land across the street from us, and lo and behold, uh, a few years beyond that, two men who loved the city, loved us, loved Jesus, came to us and said, if you'll move right down the street in front of Foot Homes, we'll give you $2 million. Yeah, you all sit there. I've never had $2 million offered me before, but that was a first for me. Uh, and we thought, and John Hammonds was, was board chair maybe then. I, I don't even remember. John was on the board then. John Coakley, who's here, was on the board back then. 
and, uh, and so we, uh, we thought, gosh, $2 million, you can build a significant building, which you can. But we were ground leasing the land we were going to build on. We were ground leasing from a church next door. And, uh, and we were going to enter a 99-year lease. And so we thought, man, let's, do we want to build something bigger since we're going to be there forever, as it seems. And so we began to, to, to pray as a board, what should we do? Uh, number one, should we do it? It's easy to build a building, but can you afford to live in it? So we did all the due diligence we thought. And, uh, and we said, this is what we should do. And we began to build out the plans. And Scott Fleming, who's now here today and our board chair now and leading us in our, our, our next effort, uh, we got together with him. We began to construct this facility for the community because we wanted to build something really nice. So we ended up building a right at a $4.2 million facility uh, with an upstairs we've added on to. So it's about a $5 million facility now. And the beauty of it is uh, nothing that Ken Bennett did but do the generosity of a lot of individuals and foundations and certainly churches like yours. Uh, we paid cash for that building. We've been operating for 24 years uh, at the end of, of next month. And, and praise God, we've never had to borrow a penny. We've never missed paying a bill. Uh, we don't have any debt on us. And so uh, 24 years there. And uh, it's been great to see what God has done over the years in terms of not only kids coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, but seeing kids empowered educationally, moving out. People, it's a big joke. Me and Steve Nash talk about it all the time. He does Advanced Memphis that owns our building now. And, and uh, people will always come to us and say, is the neighborhood better? And the tough uh, answer about that for that neighborhood is it's, it's housing developments. It's transitional housing. So when somebody does well, they move out and usually backfilled with somebody who's struggling. So is the neighborhood better? Yeah, I think so. At the same time, that's kind of the, the life we live in. Uh, well into my 50s now and had conquered Foot and Claiborne homes, not really, but certainly being comfortable there. Uh, it was a nice time in my life. And because we own property, uh, we get these real estate packets in the mail from usually from Charlie Callis. Anybody know Charlie Callis? They call him the church man. Uh, Charlie Callis, if, if you pass by church property anywhere in the Memphis and surrounding area, they'll say, cry like Charlie Callis, the church man. He's usually the guy who's selling those properties. And so Charlie had this property, or has these properties, and so he'll send me a packet of information. And so I usually don't even open it because we're not looking. I throw it in the garbage can uh, because we're not looking to do anything else. I've been in Claiborne Homes for 24 years, 23-plus years at that point. And uh, so anyway, this one particular uh, afternoon, I got the mail, and a packet was in there from, from Charlie, the church man, uh, I said, heck, I'm just going to, just out of curiosity, I'm going to open it up. And so I did, and uh, I noticed there was a church for sale on Graham, uh, 1302 North Graham. And I thought, shoot, man, I live about five minutes from there. I'm just going to drive by there. This was a year ago last February, or this past February. So I drove by there, and I couldn't believe it. Uh, it's, it's, if, you, if you have a point of reference, I think you know where Graham and Summer is, Graham Wood Elementary. You go north of there, you cross Macon and you land uh, in, the, in this area uh, called Graham Heights. And so I pulled up, and being a youth guy, and, and, and the model that we use of not only uh, bettering the community, but having a great relationship and an in-depth relationship with schools so we can help the total person, uh, I couldn't believe what I saw. Here was this property on four acres. It was a little old church, 
and then it was an old school of the 70s. You know, the, a lot of the private schools that popped up and went away, and this was one of those. It was around for about nine years. Metal building, 25,000 square feet. And as I stood in front of it that night, to the right of it, or to the, to the south, was the middle school, Kingsbury Middle School, Common Fence, Kingsbury High School. I looked directly behind the building. There's Kingsbury Athletic Fields and Kingsbury Votech. And then to my left or to the north, there was Kingsbury Elementary. And I was like, oh, man, this is just perfect. But I sat there going, man, I don't want to do another building. <laughs> you know, that was fun. Been there, done that. We've got things. We've, if you ever figure out things in ministry, which you never do, we kind of felt like we had a handle downtown. And so I just sat there that night and prayed that, Lord, if, if, if we're to go for this, uh, you got to make this one really clear. Uh, I always tell people there's, there's uh, uh, three things that I knew for sure in my life. When, when God grabbed my heart and made him his, and when he asked me to marry my lovely wife, Debbie, and uh, when we started Streets in 87, and I said, this might be the fourth one. Uh, I don't know if I got anything else right in life. <laughs> I think I got those three things. I hope this is the fourth thing I got right in life. Uh, and so went home, talked to my wife, and uh, her loving me through all my craziness said, hey, you know, you ought to pursue it. And I said, well, let me, let me find out about the neighborhood. So I looked at the neighborhood, and it was amazing what I found. I found a school district. I met with the North District Superintendent, Kevin McCarthy, who's a good friend of mine in the city schools. And the school district is 30% white, 30% African-American, 35% Hispanic, a significant Asian population, a significant African population, kids from Cameroon, Ivory Coast, uh, a mosque right around the corner from it, so we have a significant Muslim population in that neighborhood, uh, nine different languages, 44 different dialects on that campus. And I thought, too overwhelming, but how intriguing. And then I began to, we talked to Janikowski, Richard Janikowski, many of you all know, the, the criminologist research guy, and he said, yeah, the city is concerned about that area because you got some significant Latino gangs, you got some significant African-American gangs, uh, and, and, and really worried and concerned about that neighborhood. And I said, gosh, you know, I'd hate to go in there. I'm not very, if you hadn't figured it out, I'm not very sharp. Uh, my good friend John Calipari, who I'm still good friends with, I hope, some, I, don't, I hope we don't have any Calipari haters in the audience. We might. Don't raise your hand. Uh, I told somebody today, uh, John DeWall said, man, that's a nice-looking blue. I said, yeah, that's my, that's my schizophrenic blue. It's my, I'm a chaplain for the University of Memphis team, so I can wear it there. And when I go to Kentucky to see my friend John, I can wear this blue, too. So it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's this noncommittal blue. But John Calipari, when I first met him, he said, you'll find out two things about me. I'm not very sharp. Not very smart, but I work really hard. So I've kind of adopted that in my life. I'm not very smart, not very sharp, but I work really hard. How about that? And so I looked in that neighborhood, but I said, you know, I'm not very sharp, and I'm not very smart. And, and, and what makes me believe I could tackle this? But if I, as I looked in that neighborhood, it clicked. I remembered, boy, Sukasa and Esperanza and Second Press over at Burr And all those kids that leave Burr not all of them, but a significant portion of them leave there, and they go to... Kingsbury Middle. And then I looked at Independent Presbyterian Church where I go to church. And I said, oh, yeah, we do work at Well Station. Uh, if you don't know where Well Station is, you know where Jerry Snowcones is on Well Station. That's usually where people figure it out. And those kids feed into Kingsbury Middle. And then Young Life had a presence over there. And FCA had a presence over there. And Fellowship Church of Memphis had a presence over there and had been doing work over there. 
and I looked at educationally, and Teach for America has made it one of their hot spots, if you're familiar with Teach for America to dump people into. And then I looked at my good friend David Montague, and many of y'all in this room know David very well. I've known David for a, a lot of my life. Uh, does a phenomenal uh, work, and he had started Memphis Teachers Residency Program a couple of years ago, and they had a bunch of folks on campus, and so it began to make sense to me. So I went to a funder, a potential funder, and I sat down with him, and I shared the vision, and uh, he caught hold of the vision, and this church wanted $1.2 million for this entire property, four acres, two buildings, uh, one building we thought we'd end up retrofitting, and and so we, we talked back and forth, and, and which I don't do very well, and, uh, but I sought good counsel. We ended up buying the property, paying cash for $625,000 for it. Uh, and the uh, interesting thing about it is this little church that was there is now about 40 uh, white folk who, and you, you know the story of a lot of those churches in our city that uh, didn't, weren't able to staff, weren't able to stay relevant, but wonderful people who love Jesus. They had no place to go, and so we said, well, you can stay here. Uh, so they're worshiping there. And then, uh, lo and behold, things uh, changed for Sukasa and Esperanza, and you all know Ricardo Green and Tim Jewett, who heads up Sukasa, is here today, and I think you all know Tim very well. Uh, phenomenal people. Eddie called up, and, and I think actually Philip Cook might have called me also and said, hey, things aren't going to work out so well at Berkeley anymore. Uh, is there a potential there? And uh, so I think we met in the basement that Sunday or something, Eddie, and held hands and agreed as the body of Christ that that's what we should do. And, and so now we're all living in this nice little space that sometimes isn't so nice living together, but, but we do well. So we have two worship services on Sunday out of this church. And, of course, Sukasa with all the ministry and ESL classes they do, which is an incredible blessing to not only that community but greater Memphis. Uh, but in between that time, I met with this funder who bought this building. And so we were going to retrofit this, this 25,000 square foot building. And we thought we could do it for a million and a half, two million dollars, whatever, which is still significant money. And so I was so proud of it. And Scott Fleming had, had drawn some great preliminary plans for it that was really going to spice it up and make it valuable to the community. And so I had my little thing. I was, I had my funder with me in the car and I was going to, selling this great vision of what we were going to do this building. He was excited. We got out. He couldn't believe where the property was. He couldn't believe that much property in that area and told him about the neighborhood. And he was getting pumped. And we walked inside the building. We were there for about 20 seconds, maybe not that long. And he looked around. He goes, we're tearing this down. But he was a little more colorful in his language. I can't, I can't say that here because we're, we're, we're tearing this thing down. We'll leave it at that. But he said, we're going we're gonna to tear this thing down. And so he goes, but we got to raise more money. So uh, that's why I'm here today. No, I'm not here today. I'm not asking. <laughs> Everybody got a little tense there for a minute. We're all right. The doors are still unlocked. We're going to let you out of here. Uh, but uh, we began. We really felt like all on the way, God's affirmed us to do this. So we are. We are in the middle of raising some money. But but as God has blessed, we really feel like come December 11, we're going to pay cash for this building too. And we're going to sit there. We've hired staff, Reggie Davis. Raise your hand, Reggie Davis. Reggie is our site director. You might have known him as the Urban uh, Young Life Director. Uh, Hells from Arkansas and was a banker. Came to Memphis to be a banker. Ended up in full-time ministries over there with us. But uh, we're hiring bilingual staff. Most of you all know Don Batchelor. 
from this fellowship. Uh, we've hired Elizabeth, his daughter, who at the moment is over in Czechoslovakia, so we hope she comes back safe, but she's our elementary coordinator. But hiring bilingual staff uh, to reach out to this neighborhood. We're, we're on the campuses every day doing our thing and uh, excited about what God's doing there. How much time do I have left, Eddie? Oh, we're, how, how long? Uh, 30 minutes. They, they panicked when you said 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I grew up in Memphis, and uh, so I've, I've lived here. I just turned 54, and uh, I know I look older than that. I'm premature gray, but I'm just 54. And, uh, and so I know a lot of folks, and, and so living in the city this long, I get asked to be on a lot of boards, serve on committees, be part of fundraisers, go to all these meetings. And so when I get an envelope at either work or I get an envelope in the mail at home, I quickly run through it if it's from my church or from another organization in the city or some committee I've served on in the past. And I look for that magical word that I want to see in that document, and I think you can probably identify with this, that we all look for, we look for the word optional. I like when I see that word. They're saying, I can do it, but I don't have to do it. We'd like for you to do it. We're encouraging you to be a part of this. We're imploring you to be part of this great work, but we understand if you can't. And so, you know, there's some things that aren't optional in our lives. Uh, we pay bills. We pay taxes. Uh, we put gas that continues to fluctuate in our cars. Uh, we take care of our families. Uh, we have a car note, some of us. Uh, those things aren't optional. We don't even think about them as being optional. We just do them if we have the wherewithal to do them. Well, you know... As you look at God's word, there are 400 scripture, over 400 scripture in God's word that speak to the poor. And us serving and loving the poor on behalf of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is not an option. And oftentimes, we view it as that. We view it as that. You know, that's, that's kind of a neat thing that Eddie does or Ken Bennett does or Reggie Davis or, or Jonathan Torres or Steve Nash. Or who, it's not an option to any of us. As we look at God's word, how are we engaged with the poor? Let's read a couple of uh, scripture that, that you're familiar with. Uh, and, and you don't need to turn. I'll just read them real fast. This is one you're very familiar with. Religion that God considers pure and faultless is this, that you visit widows and orphans in their distress and keep yourself unstained from the world. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for the maker. Whoever is kind to the needy honors God. That's out of Proverbs. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will reward him for what he has done. In Psalms 35:10, my whole being will exclaim, Who is like you, O Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and the needy from those who rob them. And in Psalm 72, he will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy, and he will crush the oppressor. If that's all true, which I'm naive enough to think that God's word is true. I'm sold out that God's word is true. Then what keeps us from being burdened for the poor every day of our lives? You know, 
I don't think about the poor, and I'm in it every day of my life. A lot of times I focus on me. But what are the things that, if God's word's true, if he says it 400 times, you know, we like that in Scripture. It's funny when I talk to people, they'll go, yeah, I found this word, uh, you know, truth, and this is how many times God used it. And, and God's whole counsel is important to us, and, and every word in there is important to us. Amen, I believe that too. But what people do is they'll say, man, he said that a bunch of times. He really wants us to be about that. But oftentimes when it comes to the poor, we're like, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not really gifted that way. And so if God says that 400 plus times in the Old and New Testament about how much he loves the poor, he considers them the very fabric of who he is, he defends them, he calls us to defend them, it takes real offense to it if we don't defend them and we don't stand up on behalf of them, then why don't we do it? And I don't know if you struggle with that. There's some in this room who don't struggle with that. Uh, I jotted down five reasons that I've accumulated over time. These aren't the magical reasons of maybe reasons uh, we don't serve the poor. I think the first reason uh, is we define the poor according to our life experience, not according to God's word. There are words in the Old and New Testament that, that describe who the poor are. And it can be people who made bad decisions. It can be people who got robbed. It can be people who just are in life circumstances they couldn't recover from. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's comical a little bit to me. If you walk around churches, and I do all the time, and I've said this to myself, when you ask people how are they doing, what is the reason they what is, what typically say? I'm doing better than I deserve. I don't think we really believe that. I know I don't in my life. I look and I say, you know, at, at 12, 13, I was throwing those shoppers news and I was cutting grass and I went to college and, you know, I worked hard and I got a master's degree and I've gone to church every Sunday. And there's a piece of me when people say, how are you doing? There's a piece of me that says outwardly I'm doing better than my, I deserve, but inwardly because of my sin, I really think I, I earned this. I absolutely got this. And so we get caught up so many times in why people are in life circumstance. And God says, don't get caught up in that. You need to know that so that you can help them not get caught up in that again. But it doesn't matter why they landed there. As I view them as one who created them, they're the poor. And they're the disenfranchised. And they're the folks who are the out. And we need to serve and to love them in God's will. Not recklessly. You know, there's great books out there when helping hurts. The whole in the gospel. The stuff that will say, hey, you know, sometimes we mess up people by just recklessly throwing compassion out there without being prayerful and not staying in God's will. So that's the first thing I think that keeps us oftentimes from, from serving the poor. Uh, listen to this. Octavia Hill said the sin of the Church of England in the 1800s was that they were willing to serve the poor but unwilling to know them. Gregory in the 4th century stated, Mercy is the voluntary sorrow that joins itself to the suffering of another. And Amy Sherman writes in one of her books, The Need to Entangle Our Lives uh, with Another. 
I think that the second reason that we don't serve the poor is we don't want to engage longly or deeply in their lives. This will resonate with my good friend Steve back there because he's been part of this picture. We've got a guy named Tori, and I won't get all the years right, but Tori was a kid that I met at BTW my first year on campus there in 87. Great football player, Tori at that time was about 215, six foot tall, linebacker, fullback on the football team, college offers, had a great season. Uh, midway through the spring of his senior year, uh, began to dabble in drugs, got on crack, dropped out of school, still stayed in his life, struggled with all that. I got a call about six months after he dropped out of high school. His mom called me, Lottie, who said, I, I didn't want you to hear this from anybody else. Uh, Tori uh, just murdered a prostitute uh, two blocks over from where you are, uh, threw, uh, strangled her, threw her in a ditch. They've got him in jail. We ministered to him while he was in jail. Uh, he was in jail, did uh, uh, involuntary manslaughter charge for six to seven years. I spoke at his parole board hearing. He got out. We attached him to Steve. We got him a job. We reconnected with his seven out-of-wedlock kids and three moms. We got him into church. We had him a roofing job. A few months beyond that, he gets arrested again for aggravated robbery. He goes back to jail. I go back to the parole board during that time. We minister to him while he's in jail. The first stint in jail, he actually came to know Jesus. He gets out of jail the second time he comes out. We re-engage, we get him a job. Uh, a couple of years beyond that, he gets arrested again. He just got out last year. We reconnected him to one of his kids. Two weeks ago, I put some money in my pocket. I met him on an abandoned street out in Frazier. I gave him some money to eat on. He called me two, two weeks ago, I guess now, and uh, he's in the hospital with congestive heart failure. That's not, why, that's not what we got into it for. But that's what Jesus says. Don't get into it because it's going to be messy. And a lot of times we say, you know what? I want to fix this poor person and move on to the next one. And I want everything to be a Hollywood script. And we live in a fallen world and it's not going to be most of the time. And so oftentimes we don't engage with the poor because the cost is too great. We are unwilling to get involved deeply. First thing, let God define the poor. Second thing, are willing to get involved in relationship. Third reason that sometimes we struggle to, to engage with the poor, uh, see if some of these uh, statements might sound familiar to you. I don't really need a new one, but hey, I'm a gadget guy. Ever heard that? Those are the wrong color for me. Now, this is more when I speak to lady groups. They've already seen me in that. Well, that might apply to some of the men, uh, some of the dapper men in this group. I don't know. Uh, I don't really need it, but I deserve to treat myself to that every once in a while. If I just had, all my friends have. You know, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think of the first thing that pops in our head, and it should, is the sexual immorality, the decay of that society when we think of Sodom. But if you go to Ezekiel, it says this. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. How, how would you like to be described as that, huh? Especially if you're a woman. 
uh, arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They chose consumption over giving. You know, until we get, until we get our buying and spending in perspective, it's hard to reach out to the poor. And I know it is in my life. I don't know if it is in your life. I've got three kids. They've all got cell phones. Two of them drive cars. We live in a good house. I don't make apology for any of that because a thing can't be a blessing and a curse at the same time. And all things come from God and are created by God. But so many times I know at my house I'm so caught up in what my family needs and what I want personally, it becomes difficult for Ken Bennett to do anything for the poor because I'm so much about me. And I'm so much about if I put myself in the right position. Lord, if I put myself in the right position in life and make all the right investments, if I'm smart with my money, and by the way, none of that's bad, then I'll be able to serve the poor. And I think God's saying, no, no, no. You serve the poor now, today, as I've called you to do. So the third thing becomes uh, the reason we can't serve some is we, we can't overcome our own lust to consume. I know that's the way it is in my life. Fourth thing, questions you might ask, how is my future looking? Is everything lined up just right for you and for me? Uh, 401K, funds, retirement funds, vacation, what about tomorrow? Uh, you know, it's funny, I, I, I bank online, as many of you I'm sure do. And even if I'm not banking online, I go to my account every day and I look at it like it's magically going to be bigger. Uh, I'm praying for that. I'm praying for a miracle, Lord. <laughs> Make that one more zero on there, on the right side of the decimal, on the correct side of the decimal. Uh, but, you know, it's funny because I grew up in a little Baptist church, and the women in the church would say all the time, you know, you know, God, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And I thought, yeah, that's right. He owns everything. He created everything. And it's limitless. But, you know, I know in the Bennett family, we operate every day as if the resources are limited. We operate every day as if the resources are limited. You know, you can go to 1 Kings, and we know the story of Elijah when Ahab became the king of Israel, and Elijah goes and, and, and is, is, is basically relegated uh, to that ravine outside of town, and we know the ravens take care of him, and we know then, he, then God tells him, hey, go to Seraphath, and you're going to bump into this woman and ask her for food. And then we read the, the account of the woman in that, uh, in, in, in that description. We realize as it, it, it turns to her, she's getting ready to go back home. She's got enough to make one little fire and enough meal to make one little cake for her and her son. And the, the powerful thing about the end of that statement is, what does it say? She goes, I've, my plan is to go home, make this small cake, it's the last of the last of the last. We're going to eat it, and I'm going to put my arm around my little boy who I love so much, and we're going to die. Man, I've never been in that situation in life. I couldn't imagine having three kids and, and somebody coming to me like Elijah did to her and say, you need to take care of me. God has sent me. You need to take care of me. And her sitting there going, I, I, I got this, and, and I'm just going to eat it. And, and me and my son, we know this is the end. We're going to die together. And Elijah goes, well, I know you need to see your son, and I paraphrase here. Since Sandy's not here, I can paraphrase. Uh, uh, and, and, I, and, and he says, not only 
make me something to eat. Make me mine first. So the woman was faithful. What does it say at the end of it? She never went without the rest of her life. But so many of us operate, I know we do at my house, that God's resources are limited. And God says this, uh, the great Christian paradox in, in Scripture. And if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, this is Isaiah, and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, the light, your light will rise up in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. God's promise to us. He's going to take care of us. Maybe not at the level we want, not at the level of comfort we're used to, but his word is true. He says, hey, go serve those that you bump into. And you know what? In our city, <laughs> that's about every 10 feet. That's a pretty easy thing. And I'm going to take care of you. Now, don't take that wrong. I'm not preaching prosperity gospel today. You know, I, I'm not the guy who says, if I give Eddie five bucks, God's going to give me ten later in the day. I'm not saying it works like that at all. But God's word is true. Be faithful to the people he has close to his heart that he calls the poor, and God will take care of us. And fifth and finally, uh, and I don't know how well this fits, but it made sense to me. You know, sometimes when I look at my lack of faith or certainly my lack of engagement with the poor or my burden for them, and you can take this for your maybe your whole Christian faith, is uh, do we remember when God grabbed our hearts? You know, sometimes I have to remember that. The excitement for me being a sophomore in high school and being out in Colorado on a mountaintop, and I had thought I had accepted Jesus Christ walking down the Baptist aisle at a revival at eight years old, but on that mountaintop and whatever in the 70s in Colorado that God grabbed my heart. Sometimes I have to go back to that because sometimes we forget that. We forget that when Jesus said, you're mine forever and the excitement that was in us and what, how we wanted to share that. And so I think part of sometimes it keeps us from reaching out to the poor. We forget because we've kind of gone on with our lives a lot of times. Life has been good. I got my life semi in order. My kids are semi-doing the right thing. I'm semi-on track uh, financially. And I forget the very essence of my life is when Jesus grabbed it, made me his, and says, live for me and with me forever. And so those are just things, I think, to think about uh, as we look at the poor and we look at tough economic times, not only our city but internationally as people travel across the world on mission trips and stuff. That, that, that God's poor there, he has them close to his heart. What are the reasons? Those are just some reasons I threw out there. Uh, what are the reasons that keep us from every day? We, every day we should be burdened about that. Not burdened to the point of paralysis, burdened to the point of action. Last story. Thanks for holding your applause. Last story. Last story. Uh, Extreme skateboarding. You know, I grew up in the 70s, and you played baseball and basketball and football. Now everything's extreme. We do everything extreme. We extreme fight. We extreme snowboard. But anyway, they interviewed this guy uh, who's a Swedish guy who's, won, who's been the world snowboarding champion for like six years running. 
The interesting thing about him, too, is he's never been injured. And if you know anything about extreme snowboarding, which I didn't until I read a little bit, every guy who does it gets hurt. You just get hurt. In fact, guys die doing it because they're going down this slope that, and they're weaving in and out of trees at this remarkable speed, and it's not uncommon, doesn't happen every event, that people die doing this. But here's a guy who is the, the champion for six years, and he's never even been hurt. So they were interviewing him, and they were asking him about that. How the heck have you never been hurt doing this? And he said something that's kind of even childishly simple, but I think very profound. He said, I look at the open spaces, not the obstacles. That if you get up there at the top of the slope and you look and you say, man, that's a big tree. Well, that's a bigger tree. That'd break my leg. That would be, leave my wife a widow. And he said, if you get up there like that, you're going to hit a tree. And I think sometimes in our life, whether it's serving the poor or anything else in our life, we think, we, we get excited about something, we hear a speaker, or we see a presentation, or we hear Sandy from the pulpit, and we get excited about something, we step out the door, and we're so pumped, and we can't believe it, and this is going to be great, and we get in our car, and we turn the car on, and we drive a little further, and we say, man, but you know what, if I tried to do this, this is going to happen. Boy, you can't save the kids in inner city Memphis. Have you ever met them? Boy, they're a mess. You can't. You can't resurrect those lives. But if we concentrate on the open spaces that God will show us if God leads us. Let me leave you with this scripture out of Peter. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God should be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for these men in this room who love and serve you. Uh, Father, we are, gosh, we look at the news. Can't open schools. Can't balance budgets. Can't get along with each other. We look at leadership and our city and our world. Uh, so embarrassed when I turn on the television and my kids are sitting there and I talk about respecting authority and leadership and all they see is yelling and dissension. Uh, Father, we're called to be salt and light. It's easy to get wrapped up in our own little worlds. I know I do. The Bennett family does. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we've got some folks that are really hurting today in this city on a lot of different fronts. We have so many opportunities. When I look at the landscape of Memphis, see the number of ministries that this church alone supports that we could be engaged with to make a difference, not to make us feel good, but to make a difference because you've called us to be that. So, Lord Jesus, as we leave today and we get in the hurry, hurriedness of our life and our world, Lord Jesus, that we would pause and say, Lord, give me clear vision today. Give me discernment as I bump into people who are hurting. Show me how to serve and love them. Show me how to see the open spaces and not the obstacles to do that. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.